This podcast is brought to you by Ginsler Wealth. The information discussed today is meant to be general in nature and not tailored to your specific investing circumstances. This means that you should talk to your regular Ginsler Wealth advisor or your own advisor before acting on any information we discuss today. Nothing in this podcast is intended to be a solicitation and past performance does not guarantee future returns. While we are speaking with a real estate expert today, we will not discuss residential real estate and what you should do with your mortgage. Oh, but hey, that's a good idea for another podcast. Today on the Unlimited Podcast, we welcome Jeff Olin, President and CEO of Vision Capital, managing approximately $1 billion focused solely on public real estate investments. Today we cover Real Estate Investing 101, why publicly traded real estate might be a better bargain than private real estate, and just outlook on the good, the bad, and the ugly when it comes to different real estate sectors. Let's go. Welcome, everybody, to the Ginzer Wealth Unlimited podcast. Uh, today, our topic is real estate and real estate investing, a topic that I'm sure and I'm hoping a lot of listeners are interested in. We have the pleasure of having Jeff Olin, President and CEO of Vision Capital, with us today. Uh, Vision Capital is an investment management firm solely focused on investments in publicly traded securities in the real estate sector and has been doing so since 2008. And they do this through their management of over $1 billion in the Vision Opportunity Funds, which have been globally recognized with many industry awards. Jeff Olin, as I say, is the president and CEO of Vision. He has over 35 years of experience in the real estate space. In addition to 14 years running Vision Capital, Jeff has previously held senior real estate and investment banking roles at Desjardins Securities, HSBC Securities, Canaccord Capital, Bramley Limited, and Olympia and York Developments, among others. And as usual, Jeff's full bio will be in the podcast notes if you want more detail. So first of all, Jeff, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. So I don't know, Jeff, if, you've, if you're if you an avid listener of the Unlimited podcast, you should be, I hope. But we typically like to do a little bit of a back to the basics for our listeners. You know, We don't assume everyone knows everything about the topics we're exploring or talking about. So was hoping today we could do a little bit of real estate investing 101 with you. You're, you're the guru and you can give us some, uh, some, some explanation and color. And then we'll dive in and talk a little bit about your approach to uh, investing in real estate and why you've chosen the approach you have and why you think it makes sense and maybe share some thoughts there. So right back to basics 101, I guess. Can, can you just describe the real estate asset class and what it encompasses? Because I think people have a sense of real estate. It's not super complicated as to what real estate is, but it's, it's a very, very large, very large asset class, basically. So maybe just give us some color there and we'll start and, and go from that point. Sure. I mean, to take it right down, as you say, to the very basics, uh, technically, you know, real estate asset class can be defined as land and any permanent structures like a home or a commercial structure that's classified as real property and is ascribed value by the economy. And 
Clearly, the owner of real property has all the rights of ownership, including the right to possess it, sell it, enjoy the land. So the the you know, you can invest in real estate both directly and indirectly. Indirect examples are sole direct ownership, joint ventures, consortiums of investors. And indirectly, there are many paths, private equity real estate funds, unlisted REITs, publicly traded REITs, exchange traded fund indices, mutual funds, and alternatives such as Vision. Okay, good. So most people think of real estate as the home they own or, they, or the home they want to own, but there's a whole variety of different real estate categories. You've already sort of given us a high level, but maybe a little bit more color on some of the different types. Sure. NARIG, which is the North American uh, REIT Industry Association, uh, has identified 12 real estate subsectors. So this includes retail, office, industrial, self-storage, non-traditional sectors such as data centers and cell towers, and their business models are all highly differentiated. They operate with a you know, wide term and different structuring of leases. There's even a prison REIT one can invest in. And so- <laughs> Uh, you know, it's quite diverse. But I hear a lot of people are trying to get out of that one. Ah, there we go. Um, you know, and, and, and it's changed significantly. I mean, for 2010, infrastructure data centers weren't even publicly traded. Now they account for 27% of the whole sector's market capitalization. You know, industrial real estate's grown from 4% of the universe to 11% on the growth of e-commerce. Uh, and is directly impacting the decline of retail from 29% to 11%. So it, it's quite diverse. And so oh, that, that's interesting. So if you if you put all this together, you know, I, I like to think about how big are these markets when we thought we had a bond uh, topic a little while back, and it turns out the bond market is way bigger than the equity market, for example. Like you put all the real estate markets together, is there a like what's a size uh, or what does that look like in terms of size, maybe relative to some other comparables? So let's start in the United States. The publicly traded universe in the United States is $1.8 trillion. In Canada, that's about $89 billion. Conversely, at least 80% of the value of real estate is owned in the $20 trillion private market which dwarfs the public sector. And I think what's interesting about the fact that you can buy it through the public markets or the private markets, and what makes this asset class unique is there is an arbitrage that is rather unique to the real estate sector between these markets. And when there's pricing disconnects, you see this arbitrage taking bold as we've seen recently up here in Canada with the uh, government of Singapore pension plan buying a summit REIT, a publicly traded REIT here in, in Canada. Sorry, just, just for our listeners, just in case, what, what do you mean when you say arbitrage? means that uh, Blackstone, for example, has bought 49 REITs since they started their real estate group. Blackstone between December 2021 and June 2022, bought five REITs. So often, if you're looking to affect a portfolio transaction, the fact that the public markets may have a valuation that is disconnected to the private markets, which is why we envision exists, frankly, yeah. uh, 
they find that it's either cheaper or more effective to buy real estate through buying publicly traded REITs or real estate operating companies where they can efficiently and effectively acquire that real estate by buying the publicly traded entity itself. And that arbitrage is something unique. And the, you know, real estate, we can debate whether something's worth a dollar, a dollar ten, or ninety-five cents. But it's not like Google. It's pretty transparent. There's just a relatively other asset classes, a relatively narrow range of value that can be objectively determined uh, because the leases are the leases, the balance sheet is the balance sheet, the markets are the markets. Um, and so you don't see 50% takeovers or 70% takeovers premium. And so when you have this arbitrage and value is roughly ascertainable, you, you have this unique opportunity uh, that's relevant to the real estate asset class. Okay, got it. So, you know, in our business, we, we at Ginsler Wealth, we help people build portfolios. And one of the key things we always think about is concentration. You don't want to over-concentrate. You know, when I think about real estate, if investors already own a home, quite likely that's potentially the largest financial asset that they own, and that's real estate. So if I already own a home, why? What's the argument for adding more real estate to their overall, you know, wealth portfolio through your fund or through other real estate opportunities? Uh, you know, it's a great question, and um, I'm going to magnify your question by a hundred. Um, and you know, just speak to our experience, uh, and, and perhaps this is unique to what we do to some degree. But we have 40 uh, family offices and real estate executives that for multi-generations, their entire lives, their family has invested in real estate and they become investors in our fund. And we say, what the heck <laughs> is a family that their entire net worth has been made in real estate doing investing in a real estate securities fund? Right. Um, and the answer, we get one or two of four answers. Um, firstly, the opportunity to buy real estate cheaper in the stock market than the property market. Uh, you can't do that. We, you know, why do you need to be that 17th entity to compete against a pension fund or REIT or an entrepreneur to buy property in an auction hosted by CBRE or Colliers when you can buy real estate at a discount? These guys are smart. They can't buy property in the property market at a discount. So that's one thing. Two, what we do, uh, we operate both long and short. And so if the fundamentals are negative or deteriorating, you can't do anything about that in the property market. You can do something about it in the stock market. Uh, you know, Calgary office market, 2013, we began to short the Calgary office market. You can't short an office building in Calgary. Three, and this is critical, you might be the best uh, office family uh, been in the in Toronto, you know everything about the office build market in Toronto. You've been in the market, in the market, out of the market. You've got broker relationships. You've got political relationships. You've got banking relationships. But you may not know anything about the office market in Vancouver or the apartment market in Dallas, Texas, or the industrial market in Los Angeles. And so this is an asset class you're comfortable with, real estate, but it gives you the opportunity 
through some of these vehicles to get geographic diversification and property type diversification. And lastly, of course, is liquidity. To have an investment in an asset class you're comfortable with and get diversification for your family by property type and geographic region and have liquidity is something you just don't have nearly to the same degree in the property market itself. And so when things change, you can decide to move quickly. Okay, good. Makes sense. So speaking of investing in public uh, real estate, I think th the main way to invest, is, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, is investing in REITs. Um, can you explain what REITs are? What does REIT mean? What are they? How do they differ from regular stocks? So REITs were initially established in the United States. They've grown globally since then in 1960 by U.S. Congress. And it was a way to allow individual investors the opportunity to invest in scaled, income-producing real estate without the need to physically own the underlying properties. And what is important to understand is the REITs, structure subject to certain conditions is a flow through for income tax purposes. So there's no tax is exigible at the corporate level. And what this means, it enables the individual investor to get the similar tax benefits of depreciation expense that they would get by owning the properties directly and have that flow through to them as an owner in the shares of a REIT. They're total return investment vehicles, meaning would you benefit both from the required dividend payment? I'll come back to that. Yeah. And the capital appreciation of their property. So to qualify for REIT, you have to invest at least 75% of your assets in real estate. And you have to derive at least 75% of your gross income from rental income interest from mortgages or the sale of direct property and pay out 90% of your taxable income in the form of dividends each year. So they retain features of both bonds and stocks. And uh, as I say, it's changed significantly from 2010 to 2020. The FTSE Nary Real Estate Index added 70 names to its benchmark, 46% growth. Uh, they become extremely liquid. The secondary markets over 10 years from May 2011 to May 2021, the liquidity grew from 3.3 billion to 8.7 billion. And in recognition of the importance of this sector, with something called GICS, Global Industry Classification Standard, uh, added the financial sector uh, to for the first time since 1999 and 2016 where REITs and REOCs were broken out of the financial sectors to their own newly created real estate sector. So it's become a major asset class. Okay, got it. Just a, just a follow-on question. If they have to pay 90% of their income out each year, how are they continuing to grow their asset base or reinvest in the business if 90% of the income is flowing out? Great question. Um, as you recall, I said taxable income. Right. So there's a big difference between the taxable income and the cash flow. And the, big, the biggest component of that difference is that depreciation. Depreciation is an expense to derive net income, taxable right. income. 
but depreciation is a non-cash event. And so you get that benefit in terms of the flow through from a tax perspective, but there's no cash. And so the REITs are retaining that cash and they have that to continue to invest as long as, as along with the excess 10%. And of course, they can access capital markets in many forms to where they see compelling growth opportunities uh, more so than you can in the private market. Okay, perfect. That's very that's very clear. And just just for listeners, REITs stands for Real Estate Investment Trust. We've been using the acronym. And speaking of acronyms and, and jargon, I guess, I feel like the real estate industry has a whole bunch of different terms or or, or concepts that, you know, is specific to it. Uh, one that I hear a lot is something called a cap rate. I'm sure there are others, but if, if you are advising a, a new real estate investor to look for some specific uh, features, uh, terms, et cetera, can you just first of all explain what cap rate is and maybe let us know if there are other key terms that we should be uh, focused on? Sure. So cap rate is short for capitalization rate, and it's the unlevered return on investment. So if you buy a building for $100 and it has $10 of net operating income, that's your operating income before interest expense unlevered, $10 divided by $100, the cap rate is a 10% unlevered return. Unlevered return on your investment. Okay. Uh, and so... so so what are you looking for is cap rate you want the cap rate as high as possible as low as possible or or when do you want it to be high when do you want it to be low i guess is another way of asking well if you're looking to make an investment and purchase it you want to get a high return so if you can buy at a 10 percent return that's better than an eight percent return so when you're looking to sell you want to sell at a lower cap rate um, and so you want to get a mortgage, you want the value as high as possible. So as we said, it's the unlevered return. So it's how, how is the cap rate used? It's the inverse of that formula I just described. If you have, um, you know, a hundred dollars of net operating income and the cap rate is 10%. To get value, value equals the net operating income, $100, divided by the cap rate, 10%. 100 divided by 10% is 1,000. The right. value of the asset is 1,000. And the cap rate is 10%, and the net operating income is $100. And that value is the other another term that is quite relevant in and is critical to what we do is net asset value. So what is the net asset value? The net asset value is the estimated market value of the REIT's total assets, everything they own, every building, every mortgage they might own, every piece of furniture, whatever they own, the total value of their assets, less the value of its all liabilities, primarily debt. And the difference between value and their liabilities is the net asset value. 
Two other terms I think are of, of importance. Uh, one is FFO, funds from operations, and the other is AFFO, adjusted funds from operations. Fund from operation is cash flow. It's the operating cash flow. So it's equivalent to net income, and like any other stock, plus depreciation, non-cash event, less any gain, some sale, and non-control. But it's essentially uh, net income plus depreciation to get you cash flow. And adjusted function operations, because FFO is focused on operating cash flow, but you have some expenses, you have capital expenditures, maintenance capital expenditures. So AFFO, adjusted funds from operation, is attempt to give you a true cash flow after deducting capital expenditures, normalized capital expenditures, new carpeting, new drapes, a window cleaning that may not be operating, um, and you know any flattening of rents because under accounting, if you have rents that vary every year over the course of a lease, under accounting terms, they flatten out that rents. Well, one year it might be lower, one year it might be higher. So uh, that's one of the adjustments that is done to AFFO to give you a true sense of the cash flow in any particular year. Okay, got it. And when we talk a little bit more maybe about your portfolio, you can fill us in as to how all those come into play when you're looking at investments. What, so what, what I come across reasonably often with clients are, are folks that say, you know what, uh, we're going to invest a bunch of money in equities, bonds, maybe some public real estate, et cetera. Uh, or we might want to save up and, you know, invest in a, some sort of property, a income producing property, a rental property, uh, whatever. How, how do you think about those types of decisions for investors? You already talked a little bit about the benefits of investing in public real estate versus, you know, sort of the families that own real estate. But, you know, if investors are in front of us trying to make a decision, do I buy my own property and deal with that? Or do I just, you know, invest in a whole bunch of other stuff? Is there a, a guide for making a decision of that nature? Uh, um, listen, as you said, we touched on this a little bit, but I think it is worth repeating to emphasize the uh, answer to your question. Firstly, I, I, as you said in my introduction, although it may not be clear, you know, I've done direct real estate investing. I began my career with two global real estate operators, owners, developers. I've done development, I've done leasing, I've done operations, I've done applying and design, I've done acquisitions, I've done dispositions. So none of that we're doing at Vision today, but all of it's certainly relevant to our analytical investment approach. And not only do we think um, what we're doing is easier, uh, more effective, but frankly, one of the reasons that we've been a successful at Vision is we have much less competition doing it. But coming back to the heart of your question, as I said, you can't buy real estate cheaper in the, in the property market than the property market. So one of the reasons to consider it is if you like to buy things at a discount, you can do that in the stock market. Yeah, selectively. Uh, it's not the majority, but if you're good at what you do, you can find opportunities to buy that real estate cheaper. And if the opposite is true as all. Well. If you if if things are too expensive or you have a negative outlook on an office building or a shopping mall or whatever it may be, you could do something about it by being able to short. You get diversification. So do you really want to put all of your capital in that, you know, one uh, industrial building if that's what you can afford or that bigger house? 
So it allows you to spread your capital over a range of different properties and regions. You know, public markets have much more diverse access to capital. If you're going to buy real estate directly, you can go get a mortgage. Right. Uh, you might get a partnership, but if you're going to invest in public markets, uh, you can get use unsecured debt. You can use convertible debentures. You can, as the issuer, you can have a common equity offerings or do bought deals. You can issue preferred shares. Uh, these are securities unique to public markets. Liquidity is a big, big, big factor. And it's years like uh, February 2023 where liquidity, you read the newspapers, you see what's going on. We can talk about this perhaps later about yeah. Starwood REIT. Romspan and mortgage funds uh, that have all put up gates. Uh, and quality investments. You can get access to best-in-class properties that may not be available at all in the property market, even if they are, an institution or a family office might have to allocate too much of the capital up by that one-off asset. And nobody calls you in the middle of the night to fix the heater. <laughs> Yeah, but you you have to get the calls in the middle of the night from investors uh, if things are you know rocky out there. So they're calling you, I guess. They do call us. Thankfully, haven't things haven't been too rocky, but they don't call us in the middle of the night. Right, right. No, but that is it's a very good point. There's a lot of uh, heavy lifting if you're going to buy and own your own property. A lot of headaches. Uh, this is a, a a different approach to getting access to to the asset class for sure. Uh, but speaking of uh, challenges, so so uh, for a real estate investor of any type, I guess, what are the biggest risks? Maybe they're different than other types of investing, maybe not. Uh, but what, what would you say the biggest risks are for real estate investing? I think the biggest risk, and, and we call it our blood, is um, you know our investment uh, thesis is based on supply and demand. And so the biggest risks are factors that change supply and demand where you don't have the liquidity to reposition. So, um, you know, they can be positive or negative, it's a positive, but it's not a risk, but you know, yeah. you have, you know, significant employment losses. The number one factor in demand for real estate is employment growth, not the unemployment rate is misleading. If you got a job, you can buy a house or you can rent an apartment or you can work in an office or working in a factory or shopping in a mall or traveling and staying in a hotel. So population growth changes uh, are key. Climate events can be uh, impacts to supply and demand fundamentals as well. So some things that change supply and demand where you don't have the opportunity, uh, certainly relative, you might have the opportunity, but everybody might see the same thing at the same time. And you may not have the ability to effectively reposition your strategy and sell your asset. Uh, clearly, uh, it's an asset class that can prudently I use leverage. So having access to capital, both equity and uh, debt capital is key. Again, in the public markets, as we touched on, you know, you can use unsecured debt if you have an investment grade rating, um, you have more flexibility. So access to capital mortgage money, the cost of that money changing, look what's happened in the last year in terms of the interest rates moving quickly. Um, and, um, you know, if you combine those first two themes, if you're in a property type where supply and demand fundamentals are changing, 
you may be forced to refinance at a time when it's not a particularly attractive time to do that. Tax changes, uh, things that can impact you from a taxation, property tax surprises, uh, for example, or, you know, sometimes draconian tax changes that, you know, depreciation expense uh, changes policies, uh, regulatory policy, rent controls, changes in rent controls. Um, you, you know, you saw in California, the huge issue today is moratoriums on evictions. So you have a lot of deadbeats that aren't paying their rent and uh, you're not allowed to do anything about it. So uh, these are some of the risks you have to be cognizant of. Okay. Well, that's that's exhaustive. I'll try not to. I, I won't lie awake at night or I won't call you at night, but uh, there's certainly, uh, yeah, like any investing risk you have to be aware of. Um, you mentioned interest rates. So maybe the last two questions in Real Estate 101, but tying it back to what's going on in the world today. So two things have happened recently. Number one, inflation has started to go uh, go up very dramatically. And as a result, governments have increased interest rates dramatically, relatively speaking, I, I guess, uh, over the last number of months. So how does real estate investing or, or real estate asset class fare in periods of high inflation and in periods of of high or rising interest rates? Firstly, real estate typically does well in an inflationary environment. Um, it's a hard asset and the replacement cost value will go up. So it's an effective and natural hedge to inflation for really two reasons. The first I touched on, higher replacement cost. And secondly, from growing cash flows as you can mark your mark rents to market. So real estate has demonstrated, you know, you look at a 20-year period uh, between 2001 and 2020, when U.S. CPI measures above 2.5%, um, U.S. and global real estate have outperformed. Uh, in high growth, in low growth, in inflationary environments, REITs typically do well. Now, you, you need to be sensitive to the fact that certain types of real estate can do relatively better than others. Short-term leases, where you have the ability to pass through inflation. If you've got a lease that's fixed rent for 10 years, an inflationary environment, and you don't have annual inflation bumps built into your lease, you're not going to be able to adjust that. But if you own apartments where you can mark the market every year or less, or shorter-term leases, self-storage, you can mark the market every hour if you want, you have the benefit to pass through inflation. Net rents versus gross rents. Gross rents, you get your rent, that's what they pay. Net rents, you get to also charge the tenant operating expenses their proportionate share of operating expenses and proportionate share of the realty taxes. So if your operating expenses go up, if your property taxes go up because of the inflationary environment, you can pass those through to tenants if you have a net rent structure as opposed to great gross rent. So real estate typically does well in periods of high inflation. Interest rates, yellow fit in the room. Um, this is the biggest myth impacting REIT prices. And the myth Harkens back to what we discussed already. The simplified value equation for real estate. Value equals that net operating income divided by a cap rate. All the rhetoric in the Wall Street Journal and the Globe and Mail and Barron's is about interest rates, cap rates. Interest rates go up, cap rates go up. Interest rates go up, cap rates go up. If the cap rate goes up, that's the denominator of that equation. That means 
that in isolation, your value is going down. Right. People forget there is a numerator to that equation. Net operating income, in our experience, is that 100% of the time, with a lag, supply and demand fundamentals trump interest rates. I don't care if rates are going up or down. If you have too many office buildings and being built and existing at Calgary, when the energy markets are taking a fall and the vacancy rate is 35% and interest rates are going down, the value of Calgary office buildings are not going up. And same thing when rates go up. You must ask yourself, why are interest rates going up? If it is a credit crisis, it's brutal for real estate. If it's inflation, we touched on that. That's why the interest rates are going up. That's typically good for real estate. Uh, and if you look at a study from 1993 to the fourth quarter of, hasn't been updated this last year, but 2021, REITs posted positive total returns in 85% of the months when treasury yields were rising. That's interesting. Um, the other thing you have to talk what interest rates? Right now, we're talking about the Fed funds rates going to five, five and a quarter, maybe higher percent. That's what the market's underwriting. Fed taking funds, Fed funds rates five and a quarter. We believe uh, there's a serious risk of recession. You combine those two things, recession and five and a quarter, maybe because of five and a quarter percentage rates, we're going to have a recession. Hmm. It's very unlikely that the U.S. 10-year bond yield is going to pierce the 2022 high of 4.34% in that context. We've never had a recession in history where the yield on the 10-year bond didn't go down. That is what's important to real estate. It's not the bent funds rate, unless you're a REIT with 90% short-term variable rate debt, which is not the case for REITs today. Uh, it's the opposite of that. They're pretty stable balance sheets. And so it's intellectually inconsistent and economically inconsistent to think that we'll have a recession and that the 10-year U.S. yield uh, will be anything near its recent peaks. And by the way, this is consensus. If you look at the six uh, major money center bank forecast, the consensus view, the end of 2023, the 10-year U.S. bond yield is going to be 3.2%. Okay. So... Uh... What everyone seems to be scared about, inflation rising, interest rates rising, from your perspective, or at least what you've explained, real estate historically seems to do fine, if not very well, in these types of environments. Indeed. Okay, so there. look, let's call that real estate 101, maybe a little 201 as well. Your strategy and your, your funds focus on, as you've already described, public real estate investing. You've touched on it already, but maybe let's dive a little bit deep or a little bit deeper into a few questions on, uh, about uh, what you're doing there. But as you said, most of the real estate market is private. I don't want to make you repeat what you've already said, but maybe just a little bit of history of vision. How did it get set up and, and why in publicly traded real estate across North America, primarily, I guess, versus doing something different in real estate? Yeah, I mean, it was really by that basic framework that... Uh, you know, the, the co-founders of Vision, myself and my partner, Frank Merritt. Frank was a top right real estate research house for 35 years. And 
There was never a period of time in our 35 year experience where we couldn't find real estate trading more cheaply in the stock market uh, at a discounted and at asset value that it was worth in the private market. And that was the real driving force, number one. Number two, there are hundreds of real estate mutual funds. There are thousands of real estate property, private equity funds. There are millions and millions and millions of property owners, buyers. Yeah. But we do, you can count them on one hand, long, short, active investing, pair trading. You can count them on one hand globally. And so the opportunity was compelling. We happen to have that unique combination of direct property and capital markets, along with some M&A and securities laws, expertise, et cetera, in our active investing campaigns. But we had a unique skill set that was a rarity and a much, much, much smaller universe of people doing that we do than are buying real estate directly through bricks and mortar. And the opportunity, as we touched on earlier in terms of the advantages, we thought was compelling. Okay. And, and so, you know, we're going to continue talking about publicly traded real estate in a minute, but, you know, one of the benefits I think of private investing, uh, including private real estate investing, is that, you know, one might, I guess, have the, uh, the view that prices seem to be more stable. You know, every day in the equity markets, every second from 9.30 until 4 p.m., prices are flying all over the place. Um, so, you know, some investors think maybe, maybe they don't realize that, but they think that's better. My, my real estate holdings haven't fluctuated. They're much more stable than what's going on in the, uh, public markets. Any commentary on, on that? Again, it's another question of public versus private, but yeah, just want to get your thoughts. Let's connect the last question and this question, um, add to it. I mean, what you find is that in short periods of time, six months, there's a significant positive correlation between REIT prices and the S&P 500, the REIT index in the S&P 500. But yep. over longer periods of time, REITs are correlated to real estate, private market, as they should be. And while that's the case, over periods of time, you see spikes in REIT prices above and below the trend lines of private properties. There's about a 14-month lag in the private market to where REIT indices uh, react, public market reacts more quickly. And so, for example, last year, the end of the year, we talked about Blackstone REIT, but if you look at the index of the private REITs, not publicly traded, private REITs, the Blackstones, et cetera, they had an average increase in value of 13%. At the same time, REITs are now 28%. There was a 41% difference between private REITs and public REITs. And so this made no sense. One of those two had to be wrong, or perhaps both of them wrong, but they both couldn't be right. And so when you have this disconnect, that is exactly what you're talking about. So it's more stable. Um, does it make any sense to have a premium for illiquidity? That makes no sense. Right. 
the lag, private real estate, they have, uh, they're based on appraisals. Appraisals, whether markets are going up or down, appraisals are lagging indicators. So if you feel good about putting your head in the sand and thinking that you're doing fine because you don't have current values, that's better. But you've got your head in your, so maybe you're going to keep your job uh, for an extra six, nine months till people figure out your values are nonsensical. Um, but this has made no sense at all. Any structure that embeds a mismatch between the underlying liquidity of what you're investing in and the liquidity you promise investors are actionants waiting to happen. And, and we ask you conceptually, if one is willing to forego liquidity in the property market as a long-term investor, why would the intermittent volatility matter to them along the way? Particularly when it's a more accurate reflection of what the value is. And so, yeah, if you want to sleep at night by thinking you're sleeping at night or forever, um, that's pretty good. But if you want to have some of those advantages we talked about, and uh, take advantage of those opportunities and see mark to market, you know, you have a better reflection of what is happening in the marketplace uh, than you have in some of these perceptions of more stability. Right. And so I assume you have the data or, or, or you, you've created the charts or seen the charts. So a question for you. So if I plotted uh, publicly traded REIT, you know, pricing uh, in a line graph and then, you know, followed with private real estate uh, pricing. Do you actually see that correlation that the public leads the private and they sort of follow, you know, just maybe with a little bit of a lag as you've described? Yes, there are studies. That's where the 14 months came from. And, um, you know, if you look over the uh, last couple of decades, there was a study, it was an academic study. Uh, published in the Journal of Portfolio Management uh, just over a year ago. And it compared the performance of private equity funds focused on real estate through the REIT index. And at a high level, they concluded that the annual return differential was 165 basis points in favor of the REIT index. So private equity funds returned on average an IRR of 8.69%, and the REIT index had a return of 10.34% at a high level. But then the study was a student that said, you know what, that's not apples to apples. You must consider that private equity funds were operating at 68% average loan to volume leverage, whereas the REITs operated average 32% leverage. You must consider there's zero liquidity in a private equity fund focused on real estate. There's liquidity right. in the REIT index. And they went through a series of adjustments and concluded that only 27% of private equity funds focused on real estate outperformed the REIT index. And that is the index. You can look at the at same 20-year period and compare the performance of the best performing REIT quartile and the worst performing REIT quartile. The average differential between the best and the worst was 49%. So if there was ever a sector that seemed to benefit from a more active approach, real estate would be amongst it. 
Yeah. Okay. Amazing. So, so then let's talk about the public markets and, and investing in, in uh, publicly traded real estate or REITs. Um, you know, there is a view that public markets are efficient, which basically means prices should generally reflect the information that's out there in the market. But I think your entire uh, philosophy and fund exists because you may believe that that's not the case, or in particular, that real estate exhibits a whole bunch of inefficiencies. Can you give us like some examples of these inefficiencies that you that you are striving to take advantage of? Sure. Uh, I don't believe public markets are efficient, but I know that uh, publicly traded real estate markets are not efficient. So why? Your key question is why? Yeah. So, you know, we can spend a whole podcast on this, so we won't, but let me give you some <laughs> examples. Uh, let's start up here in Canada. You know, firstly, sell-side research-focused. Um, Canadian research analysts focus on REITs and real estate operating companies that generate fees for the corporate finance departments. That's it. If you don't generate revenues for Canadian investment dealers, you receive limited or no coverage whatsoever. And so there's a fair bit of insight on those that generate fees. If you don't, there's less insight. So that's an advantage for us because some people call us old, others experienced. Uh, we know every one of these entities we know most of their properties and as real estate supply and demand fundamental change or plummet growth conditions change, we can move quickly and effectively, whether it's one of the names the analysts cover or one of the names they do not. Uh, another difference is the difference in Canada and the United States. In the United States, 80% of REITs are owned by institutional investors. In Canada, 70% of REITs are owned by retail investors. And so there is a significant focus on yield. So Brokers sell yield because yield sells. Um, I encourage your audience not to make any investment ever in any other in any asset class for yield. Uh, I don't know anybody that's ever made a proper valuation based on how much dividend somebody was going to pay them this year, as opposed to how much cash flow they were going to earn this year, next year, and the year thereafter. And those people that buy REITs for yield. There's at least one month every year where the stock price goes down and destroys their yield for the year. Last year was probably nine or 10 months. And so distortions are created because of the yield component. And so, for example, you could have two publicly traded real estate entities that are identical in every respect, same property, same cash flow, same management, same lease drive, everything is the same. Except one pays a big dividend, the other pays no dividend. Which one's going to trade at a higher price in the stock market today? We all know the one with the dividend. Which one should? Well, those of us that endured business school, we had theories about higher growth, less fee leakage to bankers. It should be the higher price one. Nonsense. We've already been through this. The difference between real estate and any other asset class is that arbitrage between public markets and private markets. And everything about them is the same. They should be the same. Um, accounting standards. IFRS, this was supposed to be a panacea. It was in Europe and Asia. 2011, we brought this to Canada. And, and, and just, just for our listeners, what's IFRS? I'm going to explain it. International okay. Reporting Standards. So unlike GAAP, which still exists in the United States, where it means your accounting, uh, your financial statements show the value of the real estate at the historical acquisition cost, less depreciation. Under IFRS, 
you have to mark the market, the value of your real estate every quarter. So what is the market value of your real estate net of all liabilities? It's supposed to be market as opposed to historical cost accounting, but it's flawed. It doesn't work. And the reasons for this are several. Uh, number one, the process. Uh, it starts with appraisals. We already established appraisals are lagging indicators whether markets are going up or down. Uh, so management teams do appraisals. They have an incentive to keep uh, IFRS values low because they want to grow by issuing equity. If the value is too high, they're going to get like guys like us criticizing for issuing equity too cheaply. Then they get audit committees and uh, uh, auditors involved. The auditors are conservative, so they have an incentive to keep the value low. And then they get the audit committee involved and the audit committee wants to be conservative. Um, and so they keep it low and it ultimately goes to the board of directors. And so, frankly, if you read the accounting policy and they're breaching the policy, there's nothing in the policy that says conservative. In fact, it says the opposite. You have to do it based on observable market transactions. And the facts are, if you look at every acquisition of a REIT that took place in Canada since IRS accounting came into the fruition in 2011, They've taken an average 20% premium to the IRS net asset value as of the end of the prior quarter. Look at the most recent one, which closed today, the acquisition by government of Singapore of Summit REIT. Uh, happened to take place in a 33% premium to the stock price, but a 20% premium to the IFRS valuation the REIT published itself. So it's flawed. U.S., some different reasons, uh, as I said, 80% of ownership is uh, institutions. And most of these are what we affectionately refer to as the REIT Mafia. These are institutions that have their performance benchmarked relative to a REIT index. So they might be overweight, they might be underweight, but if it's not in the index, they can't own it or won't own it. Um, and so, they have distortions in value based and what, what makes up the decision of whether index is not whether it's good real estate or buy bad real estate, whether it's appropriately valued or inappropriately valued. It's scale, big, volume, large cap. That what makes it whether it's a good read or a bad read. And so things, the largest weights in the index tend to be overowned, while other smaller cap or attractive investments are often neglected. And so some of these, they don't care that that REIT is trading at a 40% discount to the value of the real estate. If it's not in the index, they ain't going to buy it. And so you have distortions because of that. They like pure play. They want, they don't want a REITs to be diversified. They don't like Komenar REITs and Artist REITs and HNR REITs and Brookfield properties and Howard Hughes Corp. Uh, they want to make the decision to invest in office retail industrial. They don't care that it's trading at 40% discount, they want to make the decision. So there's a number of factors uh, in both sides of the border that give rise to these inefficiencies. Okay, that's great. Thanks for explaining that. So maybe, can you give our listeners just an example from your portfolio? You know, what's a holding that you have? Maybe your top holding, maybe, you know, something top of mind that sort of hits your criteria and why? And what might be a holding, if you disclose this, that you might be shorting or not liking? Or it could be a sector if you don't go into shorts. That's totally fine, too. But just to all the stuff that we've talked about, put it together with a few examples. 
You know, one of the reasons we like these kinds of market environments is uh, we haven't talked that much about vision, but, you know, we long short and we don't use long side leverage. We don't buy stocks at margin. So when a rising tide is lifting all boats, it's harder for guys like us to differentiate ourselves. But now when there's volatility, stock picking matters more. And when we find in periods of distress like we've been through recently, it gives us opportunities uh, to make investments in real estate sectors where the fundamentals may have been wonderful, but the valuations reflected it. So specific to your question, one of the sectors we like a lot, we've liked the fundamentals for years, we're manufactured housing communities. Uh, so this, this is a sector where uh, you go and you spend $200,000 of your money to buy a prefabricated manufactured house and you put all their land. They charge you land rent. You, the homeowner, pay the realty taxes. You, the homeowner, pay the operating expenses. So it's the most pure form of cash flow in the real estate space. We talked about FFO and AFFO. The difference between FFO and AFFO in this sector is very narrow. It's very pure cash flow. And institutions didn't get this for uh, 25 years. Uh, they got it the last 15 years. And as a result, it's a sector that typically trades at a big premium to the net asset value of the real estate. So we love the fundamentals, but we didn't know it because that's not what Vision does. We like to buy it at a discount, not a premium. Well, in this big sell-off that we had, we were able to buy uh, Sun Communities specifically at a discount to net asset value. This is a sector uh, we talked about where Vision is positioning for a recession that's never had 12 months of declining net operating ever, including 2008. Um, there's limited new supply. These are beautiful, actually, communities. They look like single-family subdivisions, but they have baggage from people thinking they're trailer parks. And so municipalities don't want them, and so it's hard to get zoned for new ones. So there's limited new supply. So it's a very, very safe way to get offense and defense in terms of growth. We like the sector a lot, the current environment. On the negative side, office uh, for sure is the sector uh, we've been negative on forever. I've never seen anybody in history make money. I grew up in office uh, with a buy and hold strategy in office. Uh, you can't do it. Uh, you can buy at 80% occupied, do a good job managing it, get at least up to 95% and sell it, make a reasonable return. But to sit there year after year at 95% occupancy and think you can get a reasonable return, you cannot. And the reason is, capital expenditures and it's not the renovation of the lobby or the mechanical room it's the tenants every time you lease that space you've got to give tenant improvement dollars and free rent to get the space leased and so we were in a 20-year sector decline for demand from 2000 the internet age to 2020 the lawyers don't have law libraries anymore Deloitte built new buildings in Toronto, Montreal. They went from 300 square feet per employee to 160 square feet per employee. No office for partners. That was already going on before March 2020. Now, since March 2020, when the CEOs of HSBC, Bank of Montreal, Meta, Target stores, uh, on and on, you read the newspapers, 
and said their workforces work really well in a remote work from home environment, their long-term demand for office space is gonna be lower, we believe them. So we see a 50% reduction in long-term demand for office space and we trace. So that's a couple of themes that are, I think, instructive for your audience. Okay. I mean, you know, our office is just north of downtown. We didn't, we didn't want to be in a big downtown tower and we have free parking for our clients, which is the most important thing. No, no one likes to pay $35. No one wants to pay $35 to come see me. I can tell you that. But um, I must say when I do go downtown, I was downtown yesterday, it is busy. It, it, there are a lot of people uh, and certainly people, you know, uh, two years ago, it was a ghost town and now it is quite busy. You know, the coffee shop lineups are long, the food courts are full, the restaurants are busy. So, you know, there are people coming back. And I, I wonder if over time, those buildings really get, you know, full. Yeah, I mean, what you're seeing in terms of the office market is you're seeing a bifurcation. Uh, buildings built of 2015 or newer, have solid demand. New York City, uh, one Vanderbilt by SL Green, over $200 a square foot uh, next to uh, Grand Central Station. Hudson Yards, big demand, over $200 a square foot. Uh, if you're going to have office space, you want highly amenitized, modern, environmentally friendly, uh, well-located to transit office buildings. But buildings built 2015 and before, the sucking sound in New York City from tenants leaving those buildings is very loud. Those Park Avenue buildings, some of those buildings, if they don't, if they're not conducive to being converted to residential, are dodo birds. Certainly, the occupancy of office is not. Um, you know, you're looking at maybe 50% right to was before the pandemic, um, and most of that is concentrated on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. So come on a Monday and, and Friday and see what the yeah. guys look like right okay so maybe just to wrap up a little bit on on your fund your outlook um you've talked a little bit about what you don't like so much office space you talked about the manufactured housing is one thing you like but overall uh what are what are a few of the more positive real estate areas that you're focused on uh maybe the negative ones you've covered already but just from a fund positioning where are you concentrated Thank you. We're pretty focused uh, at all times, but particularly at this juncture. Um, so we talked about manufactured housing communities. We like uh, North American industrial real estate. Everybody gets this now, but it's three powerful secular demand forces on the demand side. Weren't there last time we had a recession. So the first is e-commerce. Everybody understands this now. E-commerce spiked to 25% of retail sales in March 2020. It's come off 16, 17%, but we think five years from now, you're going to see that back through 25%. You're going to say, Jeff, you, you told us you're underwriting, expecting a recession. Okay, recession. So Walmart sales are going to come off. But Walmart will still need that distribution space, the services sales they have, and an increasing amount because of e-commerce. Number two, reshoring. The return of manufacturing to North America, powerful. We've already seen several, um, to couple multi-billion dollar chip manufacturing plants in Austin, Texas. One under construction in Phoenix, Arizona. Intel investing over $100 billion outside Columbus, Ohio. 
these are major decisions. They're 50-year decisions. They don't get made lightly. Hey, Canada couldn't rely on the United States when Donald Trump blocked their masks from 3M Corp in April 2020. Remember that? Uh, if you lived in New York City in August 2020, you, you walked into Walgreens or Dwayne Reed, there was a shortage of Tylenol. Do any of us want to rely on China for pharmaceuticals? I don't think so. At the Three Amigos conference a month ago, there was a, a policy statement of the three leaders of Canada, Mexico, and the United States asserting the goal of 25% of all imports from Asia to be manufactured on Sword North America. That's a big number. And thirdly, you know, when I was in business school in Chicago in the 1980s, uh, the major operations clause focused on the Japanese concept of just-in-time supply chain. Just-in-time supply chain is done. It's over. It's finished. Uh, now it's just-in-case inventory management. You know, Nike will still make shoes in China or Vietnam or Cambodia, but Nike will carry additional inventories in Western economies. Uh, so demand drivers, we watch supply. Easy to build this stuff. Still easy to build it. Not so easy to get the land in the locations and markets where these users want to be. Toronto, Montreal, New Jersey, Los Angeles, Vancouver. Vacancy rates, 1%. There's a, what drove this government of Singapore buying Summit REIT at this premium? A gap, 50% between its in-place rents and market rents. Uh, so supply is a check. We see a pickup in supply in South Dallas, Phoenix, Indianapolis, Central Pennsylvania, Pretty much all the rest of the markets are quite bound. And I think the third one that I haven't mentioned, in addition to manufacturing housing communities, is Canadian grocery store and pharmacy anchored shopping centers, in particular and specifically the uh, units of First Capital REIT. We've stated publicly that we think this is the best grocery store pharmacy anchored shopping center portfolio globally. Uh, and yet the share price significantly underperformed. We call for corporate action. Uh, we're right in the middle of um, some activists that have um, come out on this name. Um, and I think this is a situation that had a nice 5% dividend while you wait. Uh, we think this is a situation that's going to unfold constructively in the next uh, 30 to 60 days. And that's the core of the long-side apartments. We're cautious because goes back to gross rents and net rents, apartments in North America are primarily gross rents. You pay what you pay. And in many markets here in Toronto, uh, you have rent control. So your rents are capped, but your expenses are not in an inflationary environment. So you got to be cautious. Our investments are in two names, Boardwalk REIT and BSR REIT. Boardwalk is 61% province of Alberta. BSR read is 90% state of Texas. Those are the two last places that are planted you're going to see rent controls. So that gives you a bit of a flavor of our positioning. Okay, perfect. Well, look, you've given us some of the stuff, uh, some of the sectors you like, some of the areas you don't. Any final thoughts for real estate investors? Maybe it's been covered already, but any sort of parting words for folks that are thinking about or are investing in real estate right now? What's the outlook for the next... 12 months, 24 months, whatever you think is important. Yeah, I mean, general advice, don't invest for yields. We like yield, but yields should be part of total return. Don't be fooled into private equity funds that misrepresent the opportunities and liquidity. And uh, stock picking matters. That 49% differential between the best performing and the worst performing REIT quartile 
is real and uh, everything is not created re equal. And so when REITs get all crushed because of the S&P 500 and getting crushed equally, pick the better REITs uh, and you're going to do very well. Okay. Amazing. So last question, which is not related to real estate or investing. We ask everybody this question. Uh, you know, our, our theme over here, our, our word is unlimited. Uh, we help clients with, you know, whatever they need across the financial world. Unlimited is very important for us to think about when we take care of clients. If you weren't doing what you've been doing for the past 35 years, not engrossed in real estate, or, or maybe you will say you'd still be, you have unlimited options. You can do anything you want in the universe. What would Jeff Olin be doing right now? And you definitely wouldn't want to be talking to me if you had many other things you could be doing. So what, what what's your interest or what would life look like for you if you weren't doing what you're doing now? I think uh, it would be given away by my name. My name, uh, the preferred name I'd like to have is Bruce Springsteen. So, <laughs> so that's probably what I'd like to be doing. Okay, rocking and rolling. There you go. Okay, Jeff, look, amazing. Thanks so much for your time. Uh, full disclosure, we do have clients uh, that invest or we allocate to your fund. It's important to say that on the podcast so people know, but appreciate everything you do for us. Appreciate your time today and uh, wish you a continued success because your success will, will have success for some of our clients as well, uh, where appropriate, of course. So thank you very much and enjoy, uh, enjoy the weekend, long weekend coming up here. Thank you for your interest in support. If we can be helpful to you, your clients in any way, don't hesitate to show. Okay, thanks. Here, bye-bye. The Unlimited Podcast is hosted and produced by Brian Ginsler and is edited and mixed by myself, David McMillan. This podcast is not to be taken as investment advice. If you like what you heard, don't forget to rate the podcast and follow us on social media at Ginsler Wealth. Thanks for listening and see you next time.